The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture reading for today is Revelation 6, 1 through 11. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his head, and I in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. So recently, uh, I have found myself in conversation with many people Uh, comparing the book of Revelation to a roller coaster. Um, Chapters 1 through 3 are kind of like cranking up that first big hill. Everybody knows, you know, you get going slow. It's just crank, crank, click, click, click. Chapters 4 and 5 are like topping the hill. And you know this is what's going to push us through the rest of the ride, even though we haven't started downhill yet. Well, Shades, from chapter 6 on... I hope that your lap bar is down and secure because we're about to put our hands up in the air and scream our way through the rest of this ride until we reach the station in Revelation chapter 22. And our downhill plunge begins in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now, you got to remember a little bit from last week, okay? So if you remember from chapter 5, John was still in his vision of God. Well, he is still right here. But he's in a vision of God's throne room, the heavenly temple space. And he beheld in God's right hand a scroll. And we learned that that scroll contains the fullest revelation of how God's people will conquer and how God's kingdom will come. We we called it the scroll of the conquering kingdom. In this scroll is our hope. This is the ultimate good news of the gospel, that God conquers all evil. His kingdom comes. His people conquer now and forever. This is the good news. But the problem is that the scroll is completely sealed. 
totally, completely, seven seals. And they've got to be broken so that it can be opened. Now, here's the deal. You need to know a little bit about the structure of this book before we get going too much further. The, the opening of these seven seals, it's the first of three cycles of seven. You, you could think of them as being like loops on our uh, Revelation roller coaster right here. We got three big loops coming. We're going to encounter these seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls. And what we will see is that all of these are designed to show us life in the last days, each from a different perspective. Now, I've said this a million times, and I will continue to say it until it is firmly planted in all of our brains. Remember what last days means in the New Testament. The last days is the church age. It is the time period from the resurrection of Christ until the return of Christ. The first century church lived in the last days, the medieval church, the Reformation church. We, last days, all of it. And what we're going to see is that these three cycles of seven are designed to give us a different perspective, each one a different perspective on what life is like during these last days of the church age. Like loops on a roller coaster are all loops, but each one will make you see the same coaster from a different perspective. So also will these three cycles of seven show us different perspectives on the same period of time, the church age. It's doing that so that we might get a fuller picture of how we are to conquer in Christ. A fuller picture of, of how we are to live until his kingdom comes. Don't forget the fullest revelation of that, how his kingdom will come, how his people will conquer. The fullest revelation of that is in the scroll. But the first two cycles of seven, the seals and the trumpets, they prepare us to read the scroll. In the final cycle of seven, the bowls, it will help to conclude what we've read in the scroll, to sum it all up. So, today, in preparation for reading the scroll, we need these seven seals opened. We're only actually going to get through five of them today. Sorry. But fortunately for us, we need these seals opened. And fortunately, if you remember, Revelation 5 revealed the one who can do just that can break the seals and open the scroll. He is Jesus, the lion and the lamb. He is worthy to open the scroll. He alone is worthy to open the scroll because like a lion, he conquered everything that stood in the way of God's kingdom being able to come, namely sin and death. He, he conquered these things as a lamb. He was sacrificed in our place for our sin. And he defeated our death by rising again. He is the slain lamb who stands again, risen. So he's worthy to take the scroll. That's sovereign authority. He has the authority to take it. And he is worthy to open the scroll. That's sovereign power, worthy to open it. He is worthy alone to lead God's people to conquer and worthy alone to make God's kingdom come because he removed everything in the way, sin and death. Shades, that's the gospel good news. Christ has conquered, taken the scroll with sovereign authority, 
power, sovereign power to open it, to bring God's kingdom, to make us conquer. That's the good news of the gospel. But why hasn't it happened yet? That has to be the question that the seven churches in Asia Minor would be asking themselves after hearing Revelation 5 for the first time. We heard that the Lamb's conquered. We, we heard that he's taken the scroll. He's done everything necessary to open and unroll that thing to make God's kingdom come and make us conquer. So why hasn't it happened yet? Why, why does it feel like evil's conquering, not the Lamb? Why does it feel like the kingdoms of this world are ruling, not the kingdom of Christ coming? And Shades, if we're honest, do we not still feel this way? If you conquered Jesus, you took the scroll, why isn't the thing open yet? Why hasn't this happened? No, I feel that all too often. I find myself crying out like, like the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord? How long until your kingdom comes? And, and why not now? Like, why not make your church conquer now? How long? And why not now? Those two questions perpetually pound through my heart and through my mind like, like hoofbeats of doubt and despair. And honestly, the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 6, we just heard them read. The first eight verses, they seem to amplify these questions in my mind. They add the sound of more galloping horses to the resounding course of my questions. In verses 1 through 8 of Revelation 6, we see the very well-known and often misinterpreted, but very well-known four horsemen of the apocalypse. We can call them conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death. We see them ride forth. And what does it cause the saints to do in verse 9? To cry out, how long, O Lord? How long, must we live in this world of conquest and bloodshed and, and famine and, and death? How, how long, when the Lamb is already supposedly sovereignly conquered, why not bring your kingdom now and make your people conquer now? I think those two questions, how long, why not now, would be galloping around in the minds of these seven churches. They're the questions pounding in my heart, and I'm willing to bet that they are echoing in, in yours too. Shades, I have good news. Revelation does not shy away from our questions. So let's ask them. How long, O oh Lord, and why not now, let's walk through this text and then let's step back to see if God doesn't answer these things. Per perhaps, perhaps he just might answer. I'm willing to bet it won't be in the way that we expect. Maybe it won't be in the way that we want, but I'm willing to bet it will be in the way that we absolutely need. Let's walk through this text. Step back to see if God doesn't answer. So, read with me. Revelation 6, verse 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb 
opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked. Behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So when the first seal is broken, we get a rider on a white horse. White horses were ridden in the Roman Empire to celebrate victory in battle conquering. And we're told explicitly that's precisely what this writer aims to do. He's armed with a bow. That's an Old Testament image for military might. And he's, he's given a stephanos. That's a crown-like wreath that was often awarded to victors in the, in the games. He is setting out for victory, conquest. We will call him the writer of conquest. Now, All of this, you've got to remember, all of this is apocalyptic symbolism. If you want to see the Old Testament background, remember that God uses images he's used with all of his prophets before. He brings them together, combines them in new ways to give us a fuller picture in Revelation. If you want to see the Old Testament background for this, go home and read Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 6. These horsemen, they are apocalyptic symbolism. In other words, they're not literal horsemen. Okay, like, they symbolize something. Don't, don't think, like, four dudes on their horses, like, galloping down on the earth. Like, that's not, that's not what's going on here. They symbolize something. And many interpreters think that this first writer symbolizes Christ and the gospel going forth to conquer the world. I mean, after all, You read the book of Revelation, there is only one other rider on a white horse in the book of Revelation. He will show up for us near the end in chapter 19, and he is clearly Christ. However, Christ is not who we are seeing right here. For when Christ comes in chapter 19, he will be armed with the sword of his mouth, not with the bow of military might. And he will be crowned, not with one Stephanos, but with many diadems. Those are kingly crowns, for he is the king of kings. If anything, this rider is a cheap, satanic imitator of Christ. Didn't didn't Jesus himself tell us to expect such things? If you go back to Matthew chapter 24, I would encourage you to read Matthew chapter 24 and compare it with Revelation 6. They parallel each other in uncanny ways. But if you go back to Matthew 24, Jesus says in verse 5, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Christ said many will come claiming to be like me, claiming to be some type of savior. He could come on a platform of religion, on a platform of politics, on a platform of military power. We have professing saviors all over the place in our world, do we not? Follow me and my way, and I will take you to the good life. The way of salvation is within your grasp. All you have to do is follow me. Many riders on white 
horses, and Jesus said that in the wake of such false Christs comes war. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. In other words, they leave bloodshed in their wake, sometimes literal, sometimes spiritual. That is exactly what our white rider in Revelation 6 brings coming right behind him. He goes forth conquering, but not like Christ. Christ's conquering brings life. This rider, his conquering brings death in its wake. Look at verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay, slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. You get a rider on a red horse, it's an appropriate color. He brings bloodshed. Let's call that this rider bloodshed. Bloodshed's what follows the desire for conquest, right? Peace is, is ripped away as people pursue to conquer by force. I mean, at this point, like it kind of feels like these horses are just a pictorial description of human history. Conquest, bloodshed, all of which only leads to greater difficulties and more death. Look at verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and it's riding a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. We can call this rider famine. In reality, he represents a lot more than that. Famine was the most severe form of economic hardship in the ancient first century world. And that's what he brings. Famine often followed on the heels of war. Uh, as kings sought to conquer, their armies consumed crops and destroyed fields amidst all the bloodshed. So, so scales would be used to measure out food, and the prices would skyrocket. We know something about that, it's like toilet paper and hand sanitizer in the midst of a pandemic, you know, the limited supplies and the prices go up. And the prices that we read about right here for wheat and barley are 10 to 15 times the norm. This is economic hardship. And I, I wish that were the end, but we have one more horseman to go. Look at verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So we have a pale horse. Uh, the, the, the Greek word refers to a yellowish greenish color. It's the color of a corpse. It's the color of disease. The color of death. That's what we can call this writer. Death. Because, in a way, he sums up all that has come before him. War, bloodshed, conquest. But he's more than that. 
We're told that with him comes disease, pestilence, even death by wild beasts. Often, if you were in war and you captured political prisoners, one of the ways that Rome liked to dispose of them was to feed them to wild beasts. These horsemen, all four of them, bring death. Death to society through conquest and war. Death to creation and economy through famine. And death to the body through disease and beast. Is this not our world? Like, this to me doesn't feel like a description of some far-off dystopian future. This feels like last night's news. This feels like every time I open the news app on my phone. This is the world that Jesus told his followers they would be living in long before he ever returns. To take you back to Matthew chapter 24 one more time, in verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. So, see that you are not alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pain. Jesus nearly lists off our four horsemen. He says, conquest, bloodshed, famine, death. They describe the world in which you will find yourself between my resurrection and my return. Is that not the same message that Jesus is giving us again here in Revelation 6? Between my resurrection and my return, this is the world in which you'll find yourself? Right after we see him as the slaughtered lamb who has risen again, he takes the scroll, begins to break the seals, and we see a vision of the world that we are living in. Right after we see him as the crucified and risen one. Right after that, here's the world you're living in until I come again, which we will see with seals number six and seven. Do you see, Shades, that the seals are giving us a perspective on life between the resurrection and the return of Christ? This is not a timeline of events. Like we, we break seal one, and that refers to this exact specific event, and then some years pass, and we break seal two. And This is not a timeline of events. It's events that typify this time between his resurrection and his return. The churches of Asia Minor, those seven churches, they would see this. These four horsemen, concurrently, all together, they typify their time. They would recognize these four horsemen as already galloping around their world. Conquest? You ever seen an empire more bent on conquest than Rome? Bloodshed? Rome may say, that it brings peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but they bring it by first removing it through bloodshed and war. Famine? Disease? Not, none of this was foreign to Revelation's first readers. 
In fact, the first century church would have felt particularly targeted by this apocalyptic stampede. They would say, yeah, sure, these things are happening in the world at large, but we feel like they are specifically trying to trample us down. I think that that's exactly what we see in verses 9 and 10 with the breaking of the fifth seal. We see the church responding to this world of horrors that's unfolded. And we need to see the church's response because we're left asking What should be our response? How are we to live in a world of pandemics and protests? How are we to live in a world of corrupt politicians and power moves? How are we to live in a world of persecution? How are we to even face down death itself? Like, How are we to live in this world that tends to lead me personally to doubt and despair? This is what the church helps us see. Verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, slaughtered. Same word as verse 4. When that red horse came out slaughtering, these Christians feel particularly targeted. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So with the fifth seal, The scene moves to an altar in heaven's temple, God's throne room, which has already been pictured for us as a temple a couple of times. As a matter of fact, when you read through Scripture and you read about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple were meant to be earthly pictures of the heavenly temple. And if you recall, the earthly temple in the Old Testament actually had two altars, It had one for sacrifice, sacrifice lamb or whatever animal. And there was another within the holy place. It was an altar for incense that symbolized the prayers of God's people going up before him in his presence as a a sweet aroma. Here in John's vision, it seems like these two altars have been symbolically combined does that a lot, right? They've been combined into one of sacrifice and prayer. Sacrifice because underneath it, we see the souls of the martyrs, people killed for the word of God and their witness. Why are they under the altar? Because, again, the earthly altar in the temple If you remember, the base of the earthly altar was where the blood of the sacrifices would be poured out. We are being symbolically shown that these faithful witnesses have been poured out as a sacrifice. They have followed 
in the footsteps of the faithful witness, Jesus. They have followed the lamb that was slain. In fact, the same word used to describe their death was the same word used to describe the death of Jesus. They have been slain, slaughtered for the word and their witness. Their lives have been poured out at the base of the altar as a sacrifice. And now their cry goes up. This is also an altar of Incense. Their cry goes up from the altar like incense before the Lord. And what is their cry? How long? They cry out with the language of the Psalms. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, God, are you going to let conquest and bloodshed and famine and death run rampant? especially over your church. These martyrs feel targeted by the four horsemen stampede. And so would the seven churches who first heard this. Surely we can recognize that from our study of the individual messages that were sent to each of these churches. Conquest. We saw again and again, these churches felt like Rome was aiming to conquer them. Bloodshed. We saw with churches like Smyrna, some were already experiencing bloodshed and being slaughtered for their faith. Famine, or more specifically, economic hardship. We saw again and again, many were experiencing economic hardships, persecution and opposition. And death. They personally knew Christians who had been killed. We get the name of one in the letter to Smyrna. They knew of the persecutions taking place even in the heart of Rome. They knew that there, there were even some Christians who had been fed to beasts. They knew martyrs in this heavenly throng. And I'm sure they they cried out along with them, How long? Look at their cry one more time. Verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you see what makes them struggle with all the conquest, all the bloodshed, all the famine, and all the death? Do you see what makes them struggle with that? What makes them struggle is what they know to be true of God. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's true. In other words, he's sovereign. He's in total control of everything. In other words, he's able to bring these four horsemen of sin to an end. He's holy, meaning he's righteous and he's just. In other words, he's not just sovereignly able to do something about sin. He is righteous, so we know he will do something about sin. He will justly bring it to an end. And he's true, meaning he doesn't lie. He will do what he's promised to do. And he has promised to righteously use his sovereign power to bring sin to an end. He's he's able to do this. He's righteous. He has promised to do this. Sovereignty is what makes us struggle with suffering. What makes us struggle with suffering is not suffering. It's what we know to be true of God. If God's not sovereign, then we don't don't struggle with suffering. We don't have any questions about it. 
Why isn't God doing anything about it? Well, he's not sovereign. He can't do anything about it. He feels bad for us, wishes he could do something, but he can't. What makes us struggle is the fact we know you're sovereign. You could do something. And you're good. Your very nature demands you do something. And you're true. You've promised. You've told me again and again in this word that you will do something. His sovereignty is what makes us struggle with suffering, and so we cry out for him to bring an end to sin. That's what these saints are praying for him to do. I know their prayer makes some of us uncomfortable, but look at what it is precisely. They want their blood avenged on those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, more explicitly in Greek, earth dwellers, it's, it's kind of like a technical phrase in Revelation. It's almost like a, a title, and it gets used for those who oppose the triune God. They're called earth dwellers because earth is their home, not heaven. They oppose heaven. They oppose God. They oppose his people. And so God's people are crying out for justice. This is not a cry for personal revenge. No, this is a cry for God to right all wrongs, to bring every injustice to justice. This is a cry for God's kingdom to come and his people to conquer. And the cry asks our question, how long? Does your heart ask that question, Shades? When you look around the world and watch the news, and these four horsemen just gallop across every story, when you see them riding strong, especially when you see them trampling under hoof the people of God, do you ask, how long? This is how... This is at least the first part of it. This is how we, the church, live in this world. We live lamenting. How long? In other words, Shades, no one on this earth should be more honest about evil than Christians. No one should see it more with eyes wide open and be honest about what we see. No one should lament injustice more than us. We are a people who live lamenting, crying out how long. We have got to live as an honest people, honest about what we see in the world. We've got to live as a lamenting people. We've got to live broken before the Lord, open and honest in prayer, pouring out our doubt and our despair. We've got to honestly lament. Do you do that with the Lord? Honest about the world we see. Honest before the world. Honest before God. Crying out how long. Pouring out your doubt and your despair. Shades, that's where we've got to begin. But we don't stay there. Because our God is one who responds to our lamentations. 
Not in the way that we may want or expect, but exactly in the way we need. Look at verse 11. See his response. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long until you do something? God answers twofold. I am doing something and I will do something. Do you see that? I am doing something and I will do something first. And we're going to spend the most of our time, the rest of our time here. I am doing something. God tells the martyrs, and see this right here, God tells the martyrs to rest a little longer. Rest, wait, rest, trust me a little longer. In other words, I'm doing something and it isn't done. What's he doing? What has God been doing? It, it seems like evil has just been winning while God has been sitting on the sidelines. Oh, shades, look Again, it is the Lamb who is opening the scroll and advancing history towards its goal. That's why I think the image of the seals is used here. As the Lamb breaks them, there is progress being made. He is advancing history towards its goal. It is the Lamb who's opening the scroll because it is the Lamb who is in control. He breaks the seals. He summons the riders. He does it through the voice of the four living creatures around his throne. Look at verse 1 again. Is it not one of the four living creatures that says, come? And how does he say it? With a voice like thunder. You remember back in chapter 4 and verse 5? What comes forth from the throne of God? Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Throughout Revelation, thunder again and again and again will be an indicator of God's judgment coming from God's throne. Somehow, these writers are God's judgment coming from God's throne. He sovereignly summons these riders because he is sovereign over them. These riders rule nothing. God rules everything. Last, uh, last night, we were getting the kids ready for bed, and my uh, four-year-old, Asher, had a Batman mask on. And Holly uh, told him to go use the restroom, brush his teeth, something like that, in order to get ready for bed. And he goes, nobody tells Batman to do anything. And Holly said, well, Batman's about to get his bat booty spanked. These riders, they rule nothing. It's like little Asher in my house rules nothing. God rules Everything. He is sovereign over them. We see that again and again. Verse 2 says that the white rider is given a bow and a crown. Who gives it to him? God. Verse 4 says the red rider is permitted to take peace from the earth and he is given a sword. Who permits and who gives? God. 
Verse 6, a voice speaks from the midst of the four living creatures. There's only one voice in the midst of the four living creatures, and it is the voice of the Lamb himself. And he tells the black rider who brings famine not to harm the oil and the wine. In other words, he limits the damage being done because he is sovereignly in control. And he mercifully won't let our evil be as bad as it could be. Could you imagine if he, if this could you imagine this world without his merciful restraint? In verse 8, the pale rider is given authority to bring death. Who gives such authority except for the one who holds life and death in his hands? The lamb. And again, we see that he limits what this rider is allowed to do. He cannot bring death to all, but only to one-fourth of the earth. Don't take that literally. That is symbolic, just showing us that this is limited. It's limited by the unlimited one. The lamb here is shown to us again and again and again as sovereign over all. Sovereign over all that we've seen unfold so we can rest knowing he is in control. His purposes will win. Conquest doesn't win. God's purposes through it will. Bloodshed doesn't win. God's purposes through it will. Famine doesn't win. Death itself doesn't even win. God's purposes through it win. If the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that. Death doesn't win. God's purposes through it do. You, you may be thinking, Jonathan, how in the world could God be in control over all of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. How, how could God be in control, bringing about his good purposes through conquest and bloodshed and famine and death? Would that not make God himself responsible for all these things? Would that not make God himself evil? Shades, as your heart asks those questions, I would direct your heart and your questions to the cross. The scene of the most evil and vile conquest. The, the place of the most horrific bloodshed as blood poured from the sinless Son of God. If there has ever seemed to be a famine of good, it was in the death of Jesus. Yet God was sovereign over the cross. Isaiah tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God was sovereign over the cross and every single purpose he had in the cross was holy, true, good, loving, great, and beautiful, glorious. God cannot be blamed for the evils of the cross. No, mankind gets every ounce of credit for that. Because in the cross, evil was our aim. But it was not God's. In the cross, God's aim was salvation. And he gets all the credit for that. You can no more credit God with our evil than you can credit us with his salvation. Through the cross, he conquered. Shades, see, see this truth. At the cross, the wicked will of man and the righteous will of God collide on the same event. And man gets all the credit for his evil and God gets all the credit for good and good wins. 
God conquers. Through mankind's evil actions at the cross, God was doing something. He was bringing about His good purposes. And if He can do it there, He can do it anywhere. And He promises that He is. Shades. When when you look around this world and you see the four horsemen galloping strong, they should not destroy your faith, but confirm it. Because the hands of the lamb are on the reins of those horses. Things are happening exactly as he said they would. This is why he has told us ahead of time that things would happen this way. So that when they happen, we may know he is ruling. He is reigning. Do you see how looking at the world through the lens of Scripture flips everything on its head? The very things that would lead you to doubt and despair now lead you to faith and to hope. Conquest, bloodshed, famine, death are not evidences that God is not in control, but that he is. His hands are on the reins of these horses. And yes, mankind gets the credit for every evil hoof print these horses leave upon this earth. But God is ultimately directing them to accomplish his good purposes. Revelation will go on to show us what those good purposes are. But right now, will you rest in this promise? Matthew 24, as Jesus told us, it's going to be false Christ. You're going to hear of wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. Did you catch what we read that he said in verse 6 of Matthew 24 that he's telling us this so that we will see that we are not alarmed? Don't be alarmed. I've told you. Because I'm in control. Don't panic. Go read, go read Jesus' uh, Last Supper discourse uh, in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 today. It's the longest record we have of the things that Jesus said to his disciples on the night he would be betrayed. And what you will find is again and again and again he will tell them about horrible things that are going to happen. The world's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to kill you like they killed me. And again and again and again, he will give them the reason he's telling them that. I've told you this. He sums it up beautifully in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I've told you these four riders are coming so that in me you may have peace. You won't panic. You'll know that I'm in control. Shades, what sets us off as a people in the midst of a pandemic is that we are a people who do not panic. What sets us off in the midst of protests and injustice is we are a people who do not panic. What sets us off in the midst of a world where these four horsemen ride as if they are in charge is we are a people who do not panic because we know the one who has his hands on the reins. Will you trust him? Will will you look 
to the cross and remind yourself that God is in control precisely when, especially when it looks like crucifixion is conquering. Will you not panic, but rest in the truth that his hands hold the reins of history? Will you trust that every pain we feel in this world is a contraction pointing us to the promise a new world will be born? Isn't that how Jesus described conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8? We read it. Didn't he describe these things as the beginnings of birth pains? I've witnessed childbirth five times. I have not been through it. Don't claim that. But it looks to me, it looks to me like when birth pains begin, they only get worse but they are doing something. Somehow, all that pain is progressing and preparing for the birth of a new baby. And Jesus promises he's doing something. That all this pain is somehow progressing and preparing for the birth of a new creation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 22, the apostle talks about creation itself groaning with birth pains right now. Creation groans with birth pains, longing eagerly for new creation to come. It's got birth pains in creation, these things, these wars, famine, conquest. All, it's like contractions getting us closer and closer to the birth of new creation. Perhaps that's why in Revelation chapter 6, it is the four living creatures who summon these riders to come. You remember the four living creatures represent all of creation? And they say, come on, writers, bring on the birth pains because creation knows that God is doing something through them and that this will lead to the birth of a new creation. God is doing something, shades, and so we rest in him, not in doubt, but in faith. He's doing something and to finish us up, he will do something. Look back at verse 11. Not only did God tell the martyrs to rest a little while longer, but he gave them something. What did he give them? Then each were given a white robe. White's the color of victory in Revelation. Faithful victory. Those who are faithful to Christ, who purely, continually cling to Christ, they are clothed in white. We saw that promise made to Sardis back in chapter 3 and verse 4. These martyrs right here are given white before Christ's conquering is even complete. Because that's how certain it is. They are given white as a promise. The final conquering is coming. I know that the horsemen still ride, but while they ride, Christ goes ahead and dresses his faithful bride in white as a promise of what he will do. He will return and he will make all things new. His kingdom will come, his people will conquer, and it will be complete. We're going to get there next time we're together, Shades. Seal 6 and Seal 7 are coming. But that does beg the question as we close, why not now? 
why not now, like, like, why not just wrap this thing up? I mean, Christ is conquered. He holds the scroll. Why not just bring the conquering to completion? We find the answer in the second half of verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Why not now? Because the number of God's saints is not yet complete. He knows the name of every single one of His people. They were written down in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. There are more who will faithfully cling to Christ and treasure Him more than their own life. And God right now, Shades, is at work in the world saving His people, saving you, saving me. And He won't stop until that number is complete. This is grace, Shades. This is God's grace towards us. And the rest of Revelation will show us this is God's grace toward the world. Today is still the day of salvation. There's still time. You can still trust in Christ and embrace Him as your supreme treasure. This is what God is doing right now amidst our world of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death. He is showing the world true conquering through a people who will shed their own blood to testify that there is no greater feast than joy in Jesus. This people will even face down death to show the world that true life is in Christ. This is what God is doing right now, even through conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death, even as it stampedes over his people. God is graciously showing the world the worth of Christ until the number who will embrace him as their life is complete. Then he will come, shades. He is doing something and he will do something. When it's complete, he will come. And he will come as the true white writer of Revelation 19, wielding the sword that is his word that will reveal every other conqueror ever as a cheap satanic imitation. He alone will come crowned with many crowns for he alone is the true conqueror. And he is conquered, yes, by bloodshed. He shed his own blood, so that we might not live in a world of famine and death, but that we might feast forever in his new world of life. Shades, that is what he will do. Believe it, because he's sovereign, he's holy, he's true. Seals six and seven are coming, Shades. He is. Amen.